Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. This is describing the grace by which God's kingdom goes forth to the ends of the earth. In fact, you know, every time I sing that song and, or read that passage in Isaiah 62, which is taken straight from Isaiah 62, it just blows me away that God would give us <laughs> the permission to give Him no rest, you know, and to not keep silent until He establishes Zion as a praise in the earth. But let's read verses 1 through 10. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and it is our glory to submit our necks beneath Your feet and to say, yes, Lord, we want to walk in Your Word. We want to please You, but we recognize apart from Your Spirit's enabling apart from your grace your forgiveness we cannot uh, even return to you the very love that you have given to us and so we pray that you would pour out upon us uh, your spirit and enable us uh, to continue to worship you and to respond uh, to these scriptures with uh, uh, responses that would be pleasing in your sight and we pray this in Christ's name Amen. amen you may be seated Well, we've come to the second beatitude, and our natural thinking is just as contrary to this beatitude as it was to the first one. And part of the reason for it is how striking a literal translation would be. We say the, the literal word for blessed is not, this is not the normal word for blessed. The literal rendering would be, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And people think, Happy are the sad? That doesn't make any sense. But if you look at the word for in there, that word for indicates that the, the, the mourning state is not the happy state itself, but the mourning is the condition to get a, getting us into that happy state. You see, it's just like the first beatitude. That beatitude said, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit because this means we completely realize there is nothing left that we can offer up to God for our salvation. So it forces us to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is the flip side of that beatitude. This makes us mourn any time anything comes between Christ and our happiness. Okay, We want uh, Christ to be in our lives. When we have once tasted and seen that God is good, we automatically, by God's grace, mourn at anything that comes between that goodness and us. And so this is not just any kind of mourning. This is a gospel mourning. This is a mourning that flows out of poverty of spirit, that flows out of a faith, a gospel faith. And uh, this is why you see David grieving any time he felt any distance between himself and the Lord. That is the greatest satisfaction that we can have to know that God is with us. God is for us. He cares for us. He blesses us in the work of our hands. Every one of us wants that to happen. But I love the way he words it here. 
because it highlights the difference between a gospel morning and all of the other counterfeits that are out there. The morning of the world does not bring happiness, fulfillment, or the comfort of the Lord. Uh, it it uh, leaves us empty, still feeling guilty, still feeling bad, but this morning here is clothed in the gospel. It does not leave you feeling bad. In fact, if you look at the, the way it's worded, those who mourn has bookends on each side. And one side of those who mourn is happiness. The other side of those who mourn are they shall be comforted. Okay, so the comfort of the Lord. And the literal rendering for that comfort is to come alongside. The idea in the Greek was a person who came alongside, parakaletos, okay, came alongside of somebody, put his arm around that person. So here's the amazing thing about this beatitude. When we mourn in the gospel way that this morning is talking about, God will come alongside of us, put his arm around us, and draw us into a close relationship with him. So if mourning is the key to that happening, it's obviously the key to fulfillment. It's obviously the key uh, to happiness. Who doesn't want that kind of a close walk with God? I certainly do. And so this is really the second key to a fulfilled Christian life. Now, it's very important we not make it the first key because otherwise uh, we're going to think that we can earn God's favor if we mourn good enough, right? Uh, but that would be a contradiction of blessed are the poor in spirit. Legalism is always looking for ways in which it can save its pride and which it can earn some favor before the Lord. And Martin Luther testified this was true of him. Before he came to Christ, he used to do all kinds of mourning. In fact, uh, it was driving the other priests crazy. They were saying, get over it already, okay? You know, we, you're always coming and trying to do something. He would beat himself with whips. He would, he would weep. He would look for ways he could do penance. He would make pilgrimages. Uh, all kinds of ways in which he could prove to God, Lord, I'm sad enough about my sins. I'm mourning enough. But he never was able to come into the gospel comfort. It was not until God, by his sovereign grace, regenerated him, opened his eyes, that he was able to mourn in a way that was really consistent with Beatitude 1 as well, where in effect he said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's where he, 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 God enabled him to come. In fact, he was able to say, Lord, I can't even offer up a proper mourning to you. I can't earn your favor even by proper mourning. Even this recognition that I am poor in spirit is a work of your grace. Remember we saw last week, every man, woman, and child upon planet Earth is a sinner. They are poor, naked, blind uh, spiritually, but they don't recognize it. To become poor in spirit is a work of God's grace where inwardly we recognize that we are bankrupt. We are beggars. We have nothing, even our mourning, that we can offer up to earn God's salvation. So salvation has already come with the first beatitude. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, present tense, right? It's not future. Some of these other ones are future tense. But the first beatitude, the last beatitude says, the moment you come, poor, utterly nothing in your hands to bring to the Lord, you've got the kingdom. It can never be taken away from you. And so don't forget the order of these beatitudes. It's an evangelical repentance. The first one gives us faith to recognize, I can't bring anything. I have to receive from the Lord. This is the flip side. It's evangelical repentance. It's true mourning over sin. Now, here's the problem. Um, there are counterfeits to everything that God has established in His Word. 
And uh, there are a lot of counterfeits of the morning that we see in this beatitude. So what I want us to do is I want us to flip forward to Christ's exposition of this beatitude in Matthew chapter 7 and uh, verses 1 through 6. Now, if you weren't here for the first sermon, uh, uh, let me just give you a quick heads up that the beatitudes are God's uh, outline for the Sermon on the Mount. So he gives eight points, and then in reverse order, he gives his exposition of the eight Beatitudes. And Matthew 7, 1 through 6, I should have included in your, well, there wasn't room in your bulletin to include the outline again, so you can see how they all line up. But uh, Matthew 7, 1 through 6, is his full exposition of the second uh, Beatitude. Let's read this together. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, if we start by judging rather than by being poor in spirit, uh, we're going to lose the gospel edge to the sword of the word and far from being a good tool for surgery, it becomes an instrument of death. And not only are you going to bring pain and misery and, uh, and uh, death to other people, you're going to do that to yourself as well because James says there's only one lawgiver, there's only one judge. And even human judges, they're not supposed to judge independently. They're supposed to, you know, John commands us, judge righteous judgment. That means you can't give your own judgment. You've got to judge what God has given. So God is really the ultimate judge and you do need to be reflecting Him. Otherwise, it will come back to bite us. Verse 2. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, use, it will be measured back to you. So we've got to start with the humility that recognizes we are spiritually beggars. God takes us from being beggars, He elevates us into the status of being stewards. That's what every believer is. He's been taken from a status of a beggar, He's a steward now. Now, a steward still has nothing, right? He doesn't own a thing. Joseph didn't own anything in Potter's first hands, and yet he had the full enjoyment of everything. And so we as stewards have the enjoyment of everything that, uh, that Christ has given. It's uh, the kingdom and everything in it. But the moment we stop acting like stewards and we start wielding the scalpel of God's Word independently, instead of that scalpel bringing healing... What it does is it becomes a lethal weapon. It's the wrong kind of mourning. Verse 3, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you. So if this is Christ's exposition of the, the, the second beatitude, what kind of mourning is he talking about? It's clear, very obvious, he's not talking about the kind of mourning that happens when your brand new pickup truck gets wrecked in a car accident, okay? It's not the kind of mourning that happens when one of your loved ones dies. Now, God cares about that too, and any of our cares, he says, cast your cares upon him, knowing that he cares for you. But that is not the kind of mourning he's talking about in the second beatitude. This is very specific to sin, mourning over sin. And the first sin that he wants us to mourn over is our own sin. He says, first, remove the plank from your own eye. 
it's very easy to mourn over the sins of others, especially if those uh, sinners have hurt us, you know, have offended us with their sins. Very easy to weep over their sins, but it's hard to weep and mourn over our own sins. It's hard to even see our own sins many times. You know, it's easy to see the sins of the brothers, uh, especially those who are very close to us. And uh, when it comes to the world, oh yeah, we either ignore the, the sin out there, we become exceedingly judgmental. We become very frustrated that dogs act like dogs and that swine act like swine. And what he's going to be saying is don't be surprised when unbelievers act like unbelievers. He says, don't be expecting them to have grace that they don't have. I don't want you being judgmental of them either. Now, we'll get to that in a moment. But back to the seeing the plank in your own eye, that takes a special work of God's Spirit. And it always flows out of a sense of being poor in spirit. Now, if we were to start with mourning rather than with poverty of spirit, it could lead you to either you know, judgmentalism on one side, or it could lead you to suicide on the other side. Some people say, well, you know, suicidal, they're just mourning too much. No, it's the wrong kind of mourning because they're still more preoccupied with getting rid of their pain and their shame than they are with God's glory and uh, resolving that and being reconciled to God. And so uh, the, the kind of, um, uh, of mourning that they have is not a gospel mourning. Uh, the kind of mourning that glorifies God flows from faith that we saw was generated by Beatitude 2, sees my own sin very, very clearly, and only then moves on to the sin of others and, uh, and uh, the, the, the evil in the world. So that's side one of the equation. We've got to avoid the wrong kind of mourning. A lot of people have the wrong kind of mourning, so we're going to be looking at some counterfeits, but there is the other side of the equation, which is that... Some people don't engage in mourning at all. They don't care to weep over their sins. Their sins really don't bother them very much. But what does this beatitude say? It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The implication is, if you don't mourn, you're not going to be comforted by the Lord. You're not going to be ushered into the happiness of that uh, beatitude. Some people's view of the gospel never lets them weep over their sins. They feel comfortable in their sins. And very interestingly, they love Matthew 7, 1. If there's one verse that just about everybody in the world knows, it's judge not that you be not judged, right? And any time you bring God's Word to expose sin in their life, woo, they bring that right up there and they say, judge not that you be not judged. They're using it as a weapon to deflect all judgment. But you know what? Those who have started with the first beatitude, beatitude number one, they don't need to ward off judgment in their lives. When people point out sin in their lives, it does not kill their faith in the gospel. They know about that sin. They know about a hundred other sins in their lives, right? And yet they still are secure in the gospel. They are not devastated by the presence of yet another sin that's there. They don't deny their sin. Instead, they graciously say, thank you for pointing out that sin uh, in my life. It's just one more reason why I need the security of the gospel. I keep seeing all of these different sins in my life. And as I repent of this sin, which I do, please pray for me, brother. Maybe even hold me accountable because I want to grow, not with the world's mourning, but I want to grow with the kind of happiness that the beatitude talks about where I'm entering into the joy of the Lord. I put this away. I enter 
through the gospel into that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now I'm going to keep emphasizing as we go through these Beatitudes, I'm going to keep emphasizing the order of the Beatitudes because if you invert the order, uh, you're going to lose the comfort of the gospel. But if you only park on Beatitude number one, then you're never going to have growth in your Christianity. As a result, you're going to begin to lose happiness that comes from walking in the light. Now here's the problem. Our flesh does not like to mourn. It's going to constantly be resistance to this beatitude. And unless we are willing to keep walking in the light and seeing our sin and mourning over it, we will not keep growing in happiness. You know, First John says that we're liars if we, do not, if we say we do not have any sin. It's proof positive you're not walking in the light. Light is always going to show dirt. And if you claim you don't have any dirt... It's pretty obvious you've not experienced the light of God shining upon you. But it also says that we are not walking in the light if we do not confess our sin and turn from it in hatred. What does a bright light do? When a bright light's shining on you, all of a sudden you notice wrinkles you hadn't noticed before, and you notice lint on your clothing, and whoa, there's crumbs on the table, there's dirt on the floor. And what does the, the human nature want to do? It wants to turn down the lights, maybe turn the lights off altogether, but it doesn't like to see all of that crud that's in their lives. And crud, by the way, is in the dictionary. It um, means a loathsome incrustation of filth or refuse. Well, that's what's happening with people who don't want their sins to be exposed, okay? Uh, when they uh, misuse this passage and they say, don't judge, the Bible says don't judge, what they're doing is they're turning off the light. I don't want the light in my life, okay? They don't want to see the crud. But what does Matthew 7, 2 through 5 say of true believers? It says true believers ought to desire to see their sin. They ought to want to see that plank so that they can get it out of their lives, that plank is a disaster there. And so the gospel gives us a security to say, yes, Lord, as much as it makes me cringe to see new sin in my life, I want you to turn on the lights. Bring on the lights. I want to walk in the light. The gospel of beatitude number one makes us secure enough in God's grace and the fact that we already possess the kingdom. Isn't that what the promise is of the first beatitude? We already possess the kingdom. We can never lose our salvation. So it makes us secure enough in that that we're willing to walk in the light and be shown by God's grace the crud that is in us. And God's grace continues to make us mourn as new crud appears. And we keep sweeping that crud out of our house with the gospel broom. And that's why Jesus speaks of the plank in our own eye as being far bigger than the speck in our brother's eye. Now, he's not denying they have a plank in their eye too because he's speaking to them just as much as he's speaking to me. They've got a plank in their eye, but God's gospel light has been shining so brightly in my living room, I'm seeing all of this sin. I see mine far more clearly than I see the sin that God is exposing uh, to my brother. And here's the point. If, we, if you are walking in the light of the gospel, there will never be a time in your life when you will not have some dirt in your spiritual living room that needs to get swept. How many times do the Kaisers have to sweep their floors in their house? <laughs> now, we do a, a deep cleaning once a, once a week, you know, under the carpets and cobwebs and everything. 
But every day there's stuff that has to be picked up. It's an amazing thing. Our house has always got dirt in it. It's a sign there's life going on. You know, if it was devoid of sweeping, it would be, probably be devoid of people, right? It's a sign that there is life. And so there are two lessons here. First, sin will always be a part of your life until you get to heaven. Do not be surprised by that. Do not despair over that. It will keep driving you back to the gospel and that will bring comfort that will bring happiness. But the second lesson is equally important, and sometimes this one's ignored. The second lesson is, if you are walking in the light, God will not let you be happy about your sin. He'll only let you be happy about the gospel. He will not let you be happy about the sin. The sight of that crud in your proverbial living room will make you get out the gospel broom and start sweeping. Now, over the years, the more you sweep, the more consistent you are, the easier it'll become and the less crunchies you're going to feel under your feet, you know, as you're walking around your house. And, um, but the point is you'll never stop sweeping your floor or taking the planks out of your eye. They're going to be there. And so this is not a beatitude just for the beginning of your life. Beatitude 1 wasn't either. All of our life we're going to be poor. Not as beggars now, but now as stewards. And all of our lives we are going to be mourners. Not to get saved, but now to deal with and to grow through our sin. So first of all, don't be judgmental on yourself, just as you should not be judgmental about other people. Uh, Do not ignore your own sin just like you're not supposed to ignore the sin that is in the world either. 1 Corinthians 11 says one of the reasons why the people there, uh, some of them were weak, some were sick, some of them had even died, is because they absolutely refused to walk in the light. They didn't judge themselves. He says if you judge yourself, you wouldn't be judged. And so we do need to take care of that. Our generation is characterized by an inability to mourn over sin. And it's an incredibly unhealthy state to be in. It is not healthy at all. Let me just give you a word picture. A few years ago, there were three of us men that uh, went to a person's house to help this person out financially and to see what other issues needed to be dealt with. And when we walked into the kitchen... The kitchen walls and counter and sink were so loaded with grease and soot. There was only tiny little patches where you could see the original color. It was absolutely gross. And as we walked into the living room, there were places we had to literally kick stuff out of the way. The garbage was up to our knees. And it was making me gag the sights and the smells, cat feces and rotting food and paper and I rounded a corner, and I am not kidding you, there was a rotting, dead cat in the corner. And my breakfast just kept wanting to come up. It was one of the grossest things that I had ever experienced. Now, we helped that person. They had wanted finances. They needed a whole lot more help than just finances. You know, they needed loving, tough love, you know, to come into into this person's life. And... They needed a vision for the future. They needed to learn to hate the kind of things that were going around. But they needed very substantial help to get them started on this process of having a clean house. Now let's apply this to the area of sin. The modern church wants everyone to be so tolerant that they will ignore all sin. And they invite you into their living room and they want you to be pleased that they're happy in this mess. They're saying, hey, ain't the gospel just great? You know... Uh, I, I, I just could live so comfortably in all of this mess. 
and you're thrilled that they're saved. You're not judging them on that account. You realize, okay, this person has come to Christ, but you notice there is no mourning over sin. Instead of the normal sweeping that you would expect when the lights are turned down, instead what you see is, okay, there's a spiritual pizza that two weeks ago fell off the table, and it's just rotting there on the floor. And uh, as you're walking around, you got your soles of your feet are sticking to the linoleum. You don't know what it is, but it's sticky stuff's down there. And you're wading up to your knees in garbage. And you're around the corner and you see a dead cat down there. And you go to this person and you say, man, you've got to get that cat out of this house. It's not good for you. And they say, judge not that you be not judged. <laughs> right? Uh, this is exactly uh, what, is, what is going on. When we point out the dead cat, they don't want the lights to come on. They don't want to deal with the plank that is in their eye. And they don't care about the fact that walking through their living room makes visitors gag. Okay? Now, I'm being graphic here because I want a word picture you will never forget about how the gospel works. It's about walking in the light through forgiveness and the victory of the gospel. Okay, the gospel is not just about forgiveness. That's where some people, even in the Reformed camps, only park on forgiveness. It's about forgiveness and the victory of the gospel, the victory of the cross. Now, all of us have had houses like that spiritually. If God's turned on the light in your house, you say, that's what my house was like. I had dead cats, not just one, several. <laughs> my house was a bad state to be in. And so we, with compassion, will reach out to such people and will seek to bring them into the happiness, the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we do not want their houses to remain that way, nor does God. Now, those who switch off the lights and refuse to use the gospel to sweep their floors on a daily basis, they are not weeping over their sins like David did. David wept over his sin and over his rebellion. Here's what James 4 7 through 9 says to such true believers who have switched off the light, and true believers can do this, okay? Because he's talking to disciples here, okay? True believers can do this. James 4 talks to these people who are at peace with their sin, and he calls them to engage in a gospel morning. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So we're not talking about legalism here. We're talking about entering into closer and closer fellowship with the God of all grace, but the God who also happens to be holy and who turns on the lights. He says, I want you to be coming closer and closer to the light of God. So we're not talking about legalism here. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I mean, how can you laugh when you've got such a grimy kitchen and you've got garbage up to your knees and you've got a dead cat over there? That is not a laughing matter. That is something we must take seriously. We've got to get rid of the sin in our lives. He says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. And so this is just one of many passages that indicate mourning is the key to happiness. Who could be happy in a home like that? I mean, you don't want to leave them in the misery of their sin. God doesn't want fellowship in a home like that. He gags over your sins. He does. 
Wouldn't you have a hard time fellowshipping in a home like that and just ignoring it, not dealing with it? Of course, you're going to go in and you're going to deal with it. But just saying, we're going to ignore that. We're going to have fellowship over cookies and, 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 and milk. And you're having a hard time getting that milk down as you're going through that. Here's what God says about himself. Isaiah 59, 2. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Jeremiah 5:25. Your iniquities have turned these blessings away and your sins have withheld good from you. You see, He wants your good. He wants your happiness. He wants your blessings. He wants you to be drawn into closer fellowship with Him. And so Jesus says, pull the log out of your own eye if you want to find happiness, fulfillment, and the blessing of the Lord. And it makes sense. A plank stuck in your eye does not feel very good. And that's what all sin is. It's a stick in your eye. In Matthew 1, verse 21, Jesus uh, uh, the angel gives the whole purpose of Jesus' life. He says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So as long as you have sin in your life, you've got a reason to mourn. You have reason to get the gospel broom and to start sweeping the living room. And some of us, I think, need more than a broom. We need a shovel and perhaps a couple of uh, accountability partners to help shovel with us, right? We've got to get this stuff out of our lives. So this beatitude is just like the first one. It's, it starts the Christian life, but it continues through the remainder of our Christian life. There must be mourning over sin. First John, read that book sometime, and you will discover that he wants your joy to be full to overflowing. So much joy, you can't even contain it in your life. How does it come? Walking in the light. It comes through a pursuit of holiness. Then in verse 5, there is mourning over my brother's sin. That's important too. Mourning over my brother's sin. Some of you need accountability partners who will really ask the tough questions to see whether you really have been free from pornography this past week or you're making progress on, uh, on anger or gossip or other slips of the tongue or other sins. You need accountability partners who will care for you. And what you need is an, an accountability partner who has so sensed the plank in his own eye that your sin looks like a speck to him. And of course, you need to see the speck in your eye as being like a plank. Let me explain it this way. You've got a speck in your eye. Have you ever had a grain of sand in your eye? Wow, does that hurt. It feels like a plank. The other people who are around you, they're thinking, it's such a little thing. You know, what's the big deal? Just a little speck of, uh, of grain, of sand in your eye. They maybe can't even see it in your eye, but you can't think of anything else. It is just making your eye weep. And to say, we're just going to ignore the sins in other people's eyes is leaving them in their misery. That is not loving. That is not loving at all. When I get a grain in my, uh, of sand in my eye and I can't get it out, I go to my wife and I, could you please try to get this thing out? Because your eyes are weeping. It's weeping. And when two people who are mutual accountability partners have that kind of an attitude, they're most sensitive about their own sins, then there's no judgmentalism. They're going to be moving each other forward in grace. It's going to be a wonderful experience. You're not going to come away feeling devastated because they're holding you accountable. They're going to feel, thank you, brother, for standing by my side. Thank you for helping me with this. So look at verse 5. Jesus said, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's not loving to leave your brother with a speck in his eye and say, ah, it's no big deal, it's just a little sin. 
just a little sin, a little speck in your eye. Just ignore it. No, that's the way some people think. They're being loving by doing that. But this guy is hurting, and God calls all of us to mourn over sin and to hate sin enough that we're willing to bring at least a little gospel light into each other's lives. It's not just the pastors who are told to admonish one another and encourage one another and to stir up love and good works. Hebrews 10, verse 24 says, that is the duty of every member of the church, to stir up love and good works. Now, yes, if the gospel has been shining brightly in my living room, then you're going to be more preoccupied with your own sweeping that love will cover a multitude of sins in your brother's lives. That means a majority of sins. Multitude of sins means most of the sins you're going to overlook. Okay, you're going to be pointing out the ones that are the most destructive in their lives. But yes, you're going to be dealing with a speck, not their whole plank. Okay, you won't see uh, the fact that even that he's got a plank because you don't know about all of his sins. It looks like a speck because the, the light is shining so brightly in your living room. But let me tell you something. That guy's got garbage up to his knees. He needs help. If he's got a dead cat stinking in the corner, he needs help, okay? It's not a healthy thing uh, to just ignore that. And what you need to do is say, brother, it's not healthy for you to have that dead cat in your room. It's, it's not good for your family. It's not good for you. Please, let me come into your life and help you through this. I've had some of the similar things myself, and I long to be involved in helping you. Now, you're not going to do it judgmentally. You're going to do it out of love. Judgmentalism thinks you're better than someone else. And that's not the point. According to verses 2 through 5, you feel like you are far worse than the other people. Like Paul, at the end of his life, he saw himself as the chief of sinners, didn't he? Why? you got this big plank. All you can see is a little speck in his eye. And so you can still help a person even if you've just taken a huge plank out of your own eye. You don't have to be better than the other person to help him. But... Because your sin has been so hurtful to you and God's gospel has ushered you into such happiness and comfort, you want that happiness and comfort for others too. Now verse 6 says that it's only when you're rightly dealing with your own sins, rightly dealing with the sins of brothers and sisters within the body of Christ, that we can mourn over the sin of the world properly. Okay, We're going to take our own sins the most seriously we're going to take the sins of our brothers less seriously, and we're going to take the sins of the world the least seriously, in one sense of conf confrontation, okay, the sense of confrontation. So verse 6, Do not give what is holy to, to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now what are the pearls and the bread that he's talking about? So many people have yanked this way out of context, you know, talking about communion or other things. In context, the bread and the pearls is the gospel mourning and the helping of others over their sin. That is a pearl. That is bread. It's precious. It brings happiness. It brings God's comfort. And we're going to share this bread and we're going to share this pearl with fellow believers. Why? Because they've got God's grace. Uh, brothers who have God's grace at work via beatitude number one feel like they've got a plank in their eye and when you see it as a speck, they're willing to have you help them out. But unbelievers aren't in the same boat. They just aren't. Should we preach the gospel to them? Absolutely, yes. We are compelled to do so, which means we need to bring the bad news of the law. The law prepares people to receive the gospel. 
But when they repeatedly reject it, they show their unregenerate character by, you know, persecuting you or whatever. Don't get angry that dogs act like dogs and that pigs act like pigs. Uh, there does come a time when you can stop preaching the gospel to them. In fact, Christ explicitly said, you know, there comes a time when they reject it and they reject it. You shake the dust off of your sandals. You move on. You spend time with those who, who are prepared and are ready. It's only going to cause damage and harm if you keep harping on, uh, on their sins before them. So you don't have to confront unbelievers about all their sins. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's asking us to have a balance here. You're not going to deal with an unbeliever's sins in the same way that you deal with a brother's sins. And if you do, you're either not loving your brother enough or you're not expressing the kind of love to the world that you should be. Uh, You're pointing out way too many of their sins. Now, should we mourn over the world's sins? Absolutely yes. Ezekiel 9.4 says, And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the, all the abominations that are done within it. Okay, he's saying here that the true believers in that city were mourning, were crying over all the abominations that was in the world. All of them. And God only protected those who had that kind of mourning. In Revelation, God puts the same mark on the head of His people in the New Covenant. So there's something wrong with us when we don't mourn over the behavior of dogs and swine. What I'm saying here is it's impossible for a man who was walking in the light to not mourn over the sins of the world. But in your relations with the world, don't keep expecting them to have grace when they don't have grace. Jesus frees you up to mourn without being judgmental of even the world. All judgmentalism must be removed from our hearts. All of it. Let me just quickly distinguish between being judgmental and being a a, a mourner. Mourning is not judging. Helping others is not judging. Okay, let me me distinguish, and this is not in your notes, uh, but uh, you can always download this sermon later. The judgmental person acts as a judge, obviously, whereas the mourner does not act like a judge. The mourner is bringing God's Word to bear in his life. There's a big difference between the two. So when a person comes to you and he says, hey, you shouldn't be judging me about my sin, say, I'm not judging you, brother. God's Word judges both of us, and I want God's happiness for both of us. I care about you. It just bothers me that you're ruining your family through this. I'm not judging you. But we need to submit to God's judgment in His Word. So I'm not a judge. I'm a messenger of the judge. The judgmental, here's a second contrast, the judgmental person acts as if he is superior, whereas the mourner sees himself as the chief of sinners. Okay? Third contrast. The judgmental person acts in a way that distances himself from the sinner, whereas the mourner wants reconciliation. He wants to be drawn closer to the sinner. He wants the sinner drawn closer to the Lord. Fourth, The judgmental person cares about the sin of another person more than he cares about the relationship. Whereas the mourner cares about the sin because he cares about the relationship. Fifth contrast. The judgmental person is law-focused, whereas the mourner is grace-focused. Getting any conviction here? (laughs) I was very convicted as I was studying through this passage saying, Lord, 
I can see, you know, so many new sins in light of this word that I need your gospel once again. Sixth contrast, the judgmental person is prideful, whereas the mourner is humble. Seventh, the judgmental person is self-satisfied, whereas the mourner is poor in spirit. He's not self-satisfied. Okay? He looks to Jesus for his satisfaction. Eighth, the judgmental person thinks, I would never do that. Whereas the mourner says, there but for the grace of God go I. I know, apart from God's grace, I'd be doing exactly the same thing that that person is doing. And Lord, please, please, please spare me from falling into that sin. We're ever so mindful of our ability to fall. Now, I'm sure there's many other contrasts that could be drawn because there's a world of difference between those two. But let me just try to summarize that when you are ultra cognizant of the fact that you are the chief of sinners and you're mourning over your own sin, then you're going to have the humility, patience, and love to help your brother through his sin. Okay? You're going to hate the sin but love the, the brother. But this walking in the light also helps us to mourn over the sad state of the world that lives under sin. So verse 6, I think, is really equivalent to Proverbs 9, verse 8, which says, Do not rebuke a mocker, or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Why do you not rebuke a mocker? Because he will hate you. What did Jesus say here? You know, don't cast these confrontations of sin before the world. Otherwise, they might turn on you and tear you to pieces. It's exactly the same thing that he is talking about. You're not going to rebuke the world. You do rebuke the world, but you're not going to rebuke the world in the same way that you rebuke a brother. By the way, if you're one of those persons that does not like a rebuke, does not like to be confronted by their sin in, in, in a gospel-oriented way, if you're constantly using Matthew 7 wrongly, it's a gross misuse, it's blasphemy against God when you use that verse in that way, but you're using it to shut off the lights, what you are asking other people to do to you is to treat you like a mocker, to treat you like a pig, to treat you like a dog. That's exactly what you are doing. It should not be a part of our vocabulary. We don't want you to be treated like a dog, like a swine, or like a mocker. Okay, what did that verse say? Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. This is why David said in Psalm 141 verse 5, Let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. For still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. He's not being a mamby-pamby about this. He's opposed to all sin wherever it may be found. But he is most concerned about his own sin, next about the sins within the church, and last and least about the sins that are out there in the world. Now just because you overlook most of the sins of the brethren as they're growing... Doesn't mean all the sins, but just because you overlook those and you overlook even more sins in the world does not mean you're unconcerned about them. David said, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Psalm 119, 136. I mean, what a sad state of affairs this world would be in if believers did not mourn over the sins of the world. We wouldn't have people out there working in crisis pregnancy center. We wouldn't be salt and light. We wouldn't even be involved in evangelism. Here's what um, Jude 22 through 23 says, and I don't think we'd be able to obey this. On some have compassion, 
making a distinction. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. You're not going to go into their living room and, and dive in the garbage and pull it all over yourself and say, you know, it's okay, I've got garbage in my room too. You're not going to be swinging a dead cat, you know, and saying, don't worry about it, I've got dead cats in my house too. That is not going to fly when you're witnessing to the world. If your life is not progressively becoming clean, you are a part of the world. You are. You cannot be doing this. The sin that you are rescuing these people from is a sin you must mourn over. It'll make you care, and if it doesn't, eventually we're going to lose the antithesis between the church and the world. And that is the state of the church in America. We desperately need the working of grace that is being described in these Beatitudes. We desperately need reformation. So hopefully, I have painted a very clear picture of the kind of mourning that leads to happiness, fulfillment, comfort from God. But you know, Satan is the master uh, counterfeiter to try to get us off track. So let's quickly look at some of the counterfeits, kinds of mourning that Satan will encourage you to have to avoid the real thing. You see, if, 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 if gospel mourning brings you into the presence of God, into fulfillment, into his happiness, Satan is going to do everything he can to keep you off track. First major counterfeit is a mourning that despairs but lacks faith to go to God. In Matthew 27, verse 4, Judah said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He confessed his sin. He acknowledged his sin. He even threw the money that he had gained on the temple floor. He wanted nothing whatsoever to do with it. Okay, so there's a sense in which this is a confession, but it was not a gospel confession because it despaired. It did not take him by faith to the Lord for forgiveness, and it did not take him to Jesus to engage in restitution. That would have been too humiliating. It was not humiliating for him to confess his sins to the priests. They already know he's a sinner. They're implicated in his sin. They're co-criminals on this. There is takes no grace whatsoever to confess his sins to the priests, nor does it take any grace for him to so despair that he will commit suicide. That is not a product of God's grace. And if you are tempted to commit suicide or in other ways to give up, I would urge you, Repent of a false mourning. Recognize it as a counterfeit from Satan and flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. Gospel mourning is the only mourning that brings happiness and comfort. The second counterfeit is mourning that excuses its behavior by partially blaming others. Saul did this in 1 Samuel 15. Now once he's caught, yeah, he confesses his sin. Samuel already knows about his sin. So he confesses it. It is way easier for me to confess sins to you, my brothers and sisters, that you already know about. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I did wrong, you know. But what do we tend to do? We try to confess in a way that salvages at least a little bit of self-respect. Saul puts a but to his confession. Yeah, I sinned, but, you know, the other person, it's not really my fault because the other person sinned too. I sinned, but. 1 Samuel 15:24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now the implication is, if it hadn't been for the people, I would have done the right thing. Right? I obeyed the people. And when you study the rest of his apology, you realize he was not taking the blame for his own actions. He acts like he couldn't help it. He excused his sin. Third counterfeit 
is mourning over the punishment, but not over the sin itself. Now, Cain is a perfect example of this. God confronts Cain about the sin that is in his heart that's about ready to get mastery over him. He just blows it off. Then the murder of Abel happens. He's confronted again. He still does not uh, deal with his sin. It is only when God says, okay, you're going to be punished. In fact, you're going to be banished from my place that Cain mourns. And he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. So there's no sorrow over the sin. It's sorrow over the punishment. And brothers and sisters, we need to be very careful when we discipline our children that we are not content with weeping over the punishment and not being concerned about having offended a a holy God. What we need to... and, And I think we should caution you on this. Don't be judgmental. Every one of us has these counterfeits in our lives one time or another. So don't be judgmental even with your children. But what you're wanting to do is point out yet another speck in your child's life and say, you know, my son, your repentance is not going far enough because it doesn't take you to the cross. It doesn't take you to the gospel. Your repentance is not because you, uh, you, you, you have offended a holy God. It's just because you are being punished. Pray that God would open your heart and see. And you know, as, as Beatitude won parents, over and over again, we're going to fall on our knees before the Lord and say, Father, I cannot even parent my child as I want to parent him. I don't have the resources in myself, but I thank you that you do have the resources. And so I come to your throne and I say, Lord, change his heart. I sure can't. I'm pulling my hair out with my child. Please, Lord, change his heart. I'm coming as a poor steward of this child, and I need resources in his life to do that. It's so easy to mourn over the wrong thing. In Exodus 9, Pharaoh repents with words that many people might think, wow, that's a pretty good repentance. Let me read those for you. He says, I have sinned this time. And actually, I guess that's a a minimizing of sin too. What about all the previous times? But anyway, he says, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there be no mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So he's forced to confess his sin, uh, but it's only to get rid of the punishment. And as soon as God relents on the punishment, he hardens his heart. Now, chapter 10, he confesses again. God brings punishment. He does the same thing all over again. So we've got to make sure that our mourning is not simply over the punishment. Throughout eternity, people in hell are going to be mourning over their punishment, but it will not be a genuine repentance. Another counterfeit is mourning over sin in general, but not over particular sins. Now, it's very easy for us to repent in general. I've heard some magnificent prayers, you know, that talk about the depths of the depravity of our heart and how wicked we are as sinners. And I've been tempted from time to time to ask the person afterwards, wow, that was a great prayer about the sin of your heart. Could you tell me five sins from this past week that exemplify the wickedness of your heart? You'd probably draw a blank stare and like, you know, they couldn't come up with five sins. It's easy to pray about sin in general. Here's what Charles Spurgeon once said. People make a general confession such as, I am a great sinner who would still resist any special charge brought home to their consciences, however true. Say to such a person, you are a cheater. And he replies, no, I'm not a cheater. 
What are you then, a liar? Oh, no. Are you a Sabbath breaker? No, nothing of the kind. And so when you come to sift it, you find them sheltering themselves under the general term sinner, not to make confession, but to evade it. You see, we are blind to our own sins apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only a person who has had beatitude one become powerfully true in their lives. They see their poverty who cry out to God because they see sin everywhere in their lives. And if you have this counterfeit in your life, please, please, please don't resolve, okay, I'm going to be a better confessor. Pharaoh was a better confessor, much better. He was very specific in the sins that he confessed and yet he went straight to hell because he was devoid of God's grace. Instead, what I would urge you to do, go back to the first rung of the ladder and ask God, Lord, I am obviously not poor in spirit because if I was poor in spirit, automatically I would be a mourner over the sins. I don't even see the sins in my life. Please, Lord, open my eyes. Make me to be poor in spirit. I need your gospel that I might have your joy. You see, it's the flip side of faith. The fifth counterfeit is a mourning that focuses only on how we have hurt each other but does not look to how we have offended God. Now, how does Acts 5 describe the lying of Ananias and Sapphira? doesn't talk about lying to Peter. They did lie to Peter. But Peter says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Stephen told the Jews, You always resist the Holy Spirit. And this is why Zechariah, in the passage I I put in your outline there, says in the future, when Israel is going to be saved and God is going to pour out His Spirit upon them, it says they will mourn for Him, that is for God, they will mourn for Him as one mourns for His only Son and grieve for Him as one grieves for a firstborn. Their mourning will focus on how they have grieved a holy God, have been distanced from a loving Father. And the, the, the more mature you grow in Christianity, the more you're going to see this as being true of all of your sins. This is why David in Psalm 51, when he confesses his sin, did he sin against others on a horizontal level? Yes. But ultimately he says, against you, you only have I sinned. How could he say that? It's because every man, woman, and child is a beggar, is poor, blind spirit. They have no, no claim upon me like God does. The claim they have is derivative from God. God commands me to relate to them in non-sinful ways. But ultimately, our sin is against God. But we tend to be very, very comfortable with a social righteousness. And so, if you are characteristic of this counterfeit, you have a humanistic mourning devoid of mourning for Him, go back to the Gospel. Claim the grace of true mourning from the throne of Christ. The sixth counterfeit is a mourning that is outward show to please men, but has no self-loathing. Now, the Pharisees, you know, they were able to confess, uh, you know, to mourn like this, even though they thought they had done nothing wrong. But you see, on fast days, you were supposed to confess your sins, and so they did it. And even a wicked king like Ahab could put on a good show when it was time to mourn. 1 Kings 21:27 says, So it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And yet he had an unregenerate heart and he was headed straight toward hell. Ezekiel 20 verse 43 shows what true God-given mourning looks like when it says, And there, there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed. Not you shall loathe your neighbors, 
but you shall loathe yourselves. I give these counterfeits not to beat up on you, but so that you can enter into the true happiness and fulfillment of the gospel. That's what God wants for you. Last counterfeit I'm going to mention today is mourning that does not involve the mind, the emotions, and the will, all three. There are many people who regretted that they did something bad. They're not stupid. They recognize, you know, this sin has had bad outcomes to it. It's only a mental recognition. This was not a good move. That's simply regret. Remorse goes one step further. It is being sorry, not just with the mind, but also with the emotions. And I think Judas is an excellent example of remorse. He didn't go to Jesus to make things right. He had bad feelings, but the bad feelings did not save him. In fact, they led to suicide. We saw earlier it was a counterfeit uh, mourning. And that kind of grief can eat away at you. It can eat away. It can make your life miserable. It does not bring you happiness, does not bring you life and liberty. It brings you death. But where regret involves the mind, remorse involves the mind and the feelings, biblical repentance, or what 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11 speaks of as godly sorrow, involves the mind, the emotions, and the will. Now, I'm just going to leave you to study that passage on your own. I'm not going to go over any of the rest of the outline for this. I'll just mention here that to say true mourning does not just gnaw away inside of you. It ushers you into such liberty, such freedom, such happiness before the Lord. And I think the prodigal son is a perfect example of the right kind of mourning here. You know, if he had just sat in Luke 15, I think it is, if he just sat in his pig pen and said, you know what, that was really stupid of me to do this. That would have been regret. Wow, that was a bad move. That's regret. If he had sat in the pig pen and hated himself and loathed himself, that would be remorse. And maybe another person might have had so much remorse that it would have led him to commit suicide or or something other crazy thing. But instead, he said... I will arise and go, and he arose and went. That is true repentance. His sorrow was a godly sorrow that motivated him to action, and it led to a resolving of the crisis. Now, the footnote in your outline shows all of that is bound up in the word mourners. Okay, I'm not going to go over that or the rest of your outline, but I do want to end with a story that I think ties all of these different threads together. The evangelist Henry Moorhouse was in a... A town uh, he had not been to before. I don't believe he had been there before. And uh, he was preaching as a guest preacher. And in that town was a a coal miner by the name of Ike Miller. Ike Miller was quite the horrible man. Very abusive of his wife and of his children, especially when he was drunk. But he seemed to be perpetually drunk. And the town had been praying for him. And... When Moorhouse came to preach, there was one guy that was brave enough to go up to him and say, why don't you come to this meeting and hear this guest speaker? And he was shocked to hear Ike say, yeah, I'll come. So he came to the meeting, and the Christians told Moorhouse, hey, the town drunk is in town. We're going to be praying while you're preaching that God would bring conviction to his heart. Well, Moorhouse preached his heart out but was disappointed at the end of the service when Ike immediately got up and left the service. He didn't come up for the altar call. That's the way Arminians do it. You know, you've got to walk the sawdust trail up there. But at least they're preaching the gospel, right? But anyway, he was so disappointed that Ike had walked out. But what really had happened was something that was powerful. He went immediately home. He kissed his wife 
and he tenderly drew his kids into his arms, something he hadn't done for years. And sobbing and sobbing, he prayed the only prayer that he knew how to pray. It was a little prayer that his mom had taught him when he was a little kid. And he said, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child, pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. So here was a guy, he didn't know how to follow the protocol, you know, how to get saved, you know, to walk the aisle. He didn't even know how to pray properly, and yet God did a profound work of grace in his heart because here was a sorrow that led him to life. Here was a sorrow that led him to the unleashing of all of the burden of those sins. No longer was he under the guilt of those sins. Here was a sorrow that led him to reconciliation. I mean, this was the full orb thing, even though outwardly it didn't look like anything had happened in his life as far as the other people uh, could say. And this is what I would urge you to do. Go to the cross of Jesus Christ every day. Every day you need the gospel. Whether you are an unbeliever or whether you have been a Christian for 20 years, what I would urge you to do is to go to the cross of Christ and say, Lord, I have not wept over my sins as I ought. Even if it's just a light sprinkling of crumbs, you don't have much sin in your life. Still, you need the gospel broom every day. And if you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would urge you to do so right now. In fact, I would just urge you to bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Tell the Lord, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Tell the Lord, Lord, I hate my sin and the way it has offended you. But I know I cannot earn your favor. And so I come to you to receive your gift of forgiveness. And I thank you for your promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I cast my sins on Jesus and receive His righteousness in my place. And I want to start walking in the light rather than covering my sin as I have done before. Please forgive me for those times that I have excused and covered my sin. And I want Your light to so shine on my own living room that I'm not only forced to embrace the Gospel every day, but I'm forced to be gentle with my brothers and sisters about their sins too. Please give me the happiness of this beatitude. Please put your arms around me and give me your comfort. May I never lose the comfort of your presence. May I never grow tired of sweeping the dirt that accumulates every day. And may I never lose the joy of the Lord which is my strength. In the name of Jesus I pray this. Amen. And if you've prayed that prayer this morning, then God's promise to you is Proverbs 28:13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. You know, when you confess your sins, that means that God sees you as clean, clothed in the righteous garments of Christ, fit to be embraced into His bosom. Doesn't mean you don't have more sins to confess, but it means because you've mourned, he welcomes you, welcomes you into his arms.